strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling, coming to you live from the Karma Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vice Channel 911 on FM here in Alice Springs and also online at Karma, that's C-A-A-M-A.com.au. Today's, of course, Tuesday. It's the 16th of April, 2019. Coming up on the program today, uh, award-winning author, uh, Bunurong Yuan and Tasmanian Aboriginal man Bruce Pascoe was recently in Alice Springs as part of the uh, Pajma Festival. Uh, we may have heard yesterday uh, the first part of our conversation with uh, Bruce Pascoe. We're going to be playing the second part of that conversation today. Also, the uh, peak national body representing uh, Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations is calling for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health to be made a priority for the upcoming federal election. Also last week, the Royal Australian uh, Mint uh, released a special 50-cent coin into circulation which recognises the International Year of Indigenous Languages. The Royal Australian Mint CEO will be discussing the 50-cent on the show this morning. We'll also be having the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Hey you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Well, as part of the Parjama Festival here in Mbantua, Alice Springs, Bruce Pascoe and a, a uh, Bunurong Yuan and Tasmanian Aboriginal man who's a award-winning writer was in Alice Springs. He's uh, won numerous awards such as Book of the Year and Indigenous Writers' Prize in the 2016 uh, Premier's Literacy Awards. During his time in Alice Springs, Mr. Pascoe did come into Calm Radio and yesterday we played the first part of uh, Conversations with Mr. Pascoe. Today we're going to bring you the second part of that conversation with Calm Radio's Paul Wiles. Bruce, going back to the 70s when the political movement became alive again, what was your understanding of the 10th Embassy in Canberra? I mean, what was going on around the country up in Queensland with Joe yeah. Jockey Peterson? I mean, yeah. how, how were you sitting at that stage? Well, I was ignorant, but like I said about Michael Mansell, the 10th Embassy had the same impact on me uh, because it told me that you had to be political. You couldn't just be hiding in the grass. You had to stand up. So both of those events were crucial to me. And uh, from that point on, I was getting involved. And I was going around the elders, asking them all sorts of questions. And they were saying, well, we can't answer that question because you're too ignorant. So there was, you know, 20 years of learning going on there. I think of William Cooper in the Second World War, 
who took the side of Jewish people because he knew it was just. You know, that's the kind of influence that just stunned me. You know, how could one man, when the rest of Australia was just cruising along, allowing Germany to do its thing, and one black man stands up and says, that's not right. He was the conscience of Australia. And people like William Cooper were involved in our early independence movements and things like that. Such a you know, great leader of people. Doug Nichols, all those people, Faith Bandler, they all such magnificent people and I knew them all. And now I'm working on our farm at the moment. Some lads are helping me build some gardens down there for these native foods, you know, so-called native foods. And, and one of them's related to William Cooper, you know. I love that. I love it that a relative of William Cooper is a relative of old man Palmer are working together again. When you wrote the book, The Dark Emu, did you think it would achieve what it did? Yeah, I did. I actually knew that because when I was researching it and um, I was coming up with all these things of crops being sown in the Northern Territory, South Australian border area, Queensland, New South Wales area, Victoria, Tasmania, Western Australia, all over the place. And I was talking to people about it. I said, did you, do you know that this was happening? And people were just astounded by it. And then I was taken aside by some professors from ANU. And, um, you know, they virtually patted me on the head like a little black boy and said, oh, look, Bruce, you know, we know you're enthusiastic. You know, we know you're an Aboriginal person, um, but you can't tell lies to our students. And that was just a red rag to a bull. And I left that meeting and I thought, all right, gloves are off now. We're going to really talk turkey. But I knew that the only way I could tell that story was through the authorities that they recognised of, of Australian history, and they were the explorers. If I couldn't find a quote from an Australian explorer, they wouldn't believe the word of a black person. You know, that, that's been the classic case. Our opinion was never taken in, into court of law. It was illegal to accept the word of a black man for so long. And it, the same in history. You can't take the word of a black man. And so I said, all right. And because I'd, I'd already seen some of this evidence in the Explorer's Journals, I said, right, I'm going to trawl the library. I'm just, so I spent five years in libraries going through all the white notes and there's just so much information about what our, our people were doing there. And I knew before the book came out, going to go well. And it would surprise Australia. But Australia, it seemed to me, were just about ready. There was a new mood in the country. And I thought, uh, this is going to go well. I said to Mugabala, fabulous publishing house from Broome. I said to him, listen, mate, you know, this is going to go. So you better print a lot because it'll take off. I knew it would. But they printed 2,000 and, of course... They, they went really quickly and, it, you know, it's now selling 5000 a month five years later. So I wasn't at all surprised. But with the money that I've made out of that, I've been able to employ people on the farm um, and we can talk culture. We do culture. We work on preparing these crops and seedling areas. At night we go fishing, you know, like it's, it's we follow in our cultural path as well as doing hard work. Bill Gamage wrote uh, in a book that, you know, he, obviously initially Bill's story was uh, 
um, accepted perhaps a little bit more than yours, uh, you know, because he was a white academic and he obviously knew what he was talking about. But, uh, <laughs> you know, as you've said, for the uh, little mm. black boy to, to mm. come up with a, a, mm. an accusation that sort of dispelled uh, mm. white colonial history, uh, it's taken um, some time for people to really look at what you wrote in the book and to verify it and then to start thinking about, well, how do we rewrite Australian history? And, and I think that's maybe the next yeah. part of your journey. We're working on a, a two-part series for Dark Emu now, so that'll take care of this year. But I, I'm a novelist, really, just a straight storyteller. So I've got a novel and a collection of stories coming out this year. But it's kind of inevitable that I'll end up writing more history. And what the, the intriguing thing for me is, how did this come about? How did it happen that a group of people could come to Australia, completely rewrite the history of the land, and then tell everyone else that it was true? And Australia swallowed it like a sardine, you know, bang, down the gullet, gone. You know, we accept that. And everyone has ever since. So what was in the brains of the Europeans that made them think they could get away with that and made them think that it was right. So the next book I'm writing, and I've written a couple of chapters, is called The European Mind because they they didn't just do it to us. They did it to Asia, they did it to America, they did it to the islands. So what was going on in their brain that made them leave their own country and decide to take everyone else's by force? What was in their brain? Because it's a Christian ethic too. You know, I know a lot of our people are Christians, but the Christian church supported that idea that the Europeans were the pinnacle of human development and everything else would have to fall in front of it like a field of wheat. And yet our people here had a system of cross-continental government that ought to be the envy of the world because we conducted ourselves not without anger, not without bad temper, not without punishments and things like that, but we did it without war for land. That's first in human development. So as Lebanon and Israel and Palestine and all of those countries, on whatever continent it is, can't conduct their business without land war, here's a land that did it. You know, the land and the people absorbed that history out of the land. And so it has to be a commodity that is valued higher than gold in the world. How can you conduct human affairs in peace? And I'm just astounded that we never talked about it in this country. Our people have. Old people have. You know, our people have said, we've always been here. You know, and our people said, well, this is our land here. You know, I'm only responsible for this land here, not that land over there. You know, how does the kind of intellectual rigour to create a system like that is phenomenal and it's, it's unique. This European concept of, of privilege and everything that they do, they do better than mm. anyone else. Um, as you said, it's not just Australia, but Australia is what we're concerned about and our children and their children will be concerned about. So you drafted a letter to Andrew Bolt, an article that I read, and you were questioning about having a beer with him. And (laughs) um, with the likes of Andrew Bolt and the other shock Mm. jocks of this nation, I mean, Mm. some have been there a very long time, Mm. uh, spinning their their webs of of hate and anger against First Nations Ray Hadley and people like that. But getting to the point where Aboriginal people can 
fight that on an equal level will obviously take some time. Yeah, I'm proud of the fact that I think Dark Emu allows some Aboriginal people to fight back on equal footing with academics. You know, instead of being patted on the head by academics who come in and say, oh, we're going to study you, um, we're not going to pay anybody and we'll take the results away later on and you won't be able to access them again. Um, those days are gone now because our people can say, well, hang on, actually, we were the agriculturalists in this country. Now, you listen to us. You know, we were here doing this, the first people in the world to make bread, you know, the first people in the world to make a law without war. Now, you listen to us. So we want to be on the board. We want to be the people helping to decide the water policy for the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, for the, all the river systems in the Territory, WA, Queensland. You know, we've actually got some pretty good ideas about this um, because when we had the rivers, they had water in them. Can't always say that about the Todd, but we've actually got good land management practices which we can teach non-Aboriginal Australia. And I think that's a very different conversation and I'm proud to have been involved in that conversation because I can see it working down south where people are starting to say, well, we don't want to be pushed around by you, Mob, with your presumed superiority. We've got our superiority, and it's called Australia. That was Banarong UN and Tasmanian Aboriginal man there, award-winning writer Bruce Pascoe speaking with Calm Radio's uh, Paul Wiles. We'll bring you the other parts of that conversation throughout the rest of this week. Before we go into the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hey, hey, this is Shawnee Tilbury and you listen to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo! Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio 8 FM. Great to have your company this Tuesday morning and I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the Karma Radio studio by uh, Karma's Damien Williams and Philippe Perez. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Good morning. Word up and hello to everyone. Well, Philippe, uh, we'll start with you. I understand uh, we've got a story today in regards to uh, Top End Wedding. Yeah, well, let's start with this. Uh, Actor Miranda Tapsell has uh, been uh, in Darwin. Uh, A couple of days ago, there was a huge launch of a movie called Top End Wedding, which the NT government are hoping will give tourism a boost um, following the premiere. Now, the film uh, stars uh, Miranda Tapsell, who's a very well-known Aboriginal Larrakia woman, uh, and it's a romantic comedy. Uh, it's premiering, premi- premiering around the country this week, and the, the NT government and, and also the film industry are hoping that this will have a big impact on global audiences as well to hopefully come to the to the um, top end and the Northern Territory as well. Now, the I don't know too much about the movie, but as it says, it's a romantic comedy, and I I believe um, I, I remember seeing a trailer for it. And from my understanding, it's just simply the trials and tribulations of uh, going through, uh, you know, uh, people moving to a far-off land and trying to, you know, adjust to the lifestyle of the Northern Territory. Um, it was directed by Wayne Blair, who force, first brought Territory talent Jessica Malboy and Miranda Tapsell for The Sapphires. And uh, he actually was at the launch and uh, said that he was uh, really happy to showcase the geography of the place as well. So this film tells a really great story from an Aboriginal perspective and talks about, you know, Aboriginal people's place 
in today's Northern Territory. But uh, Tourism NT are also hoping that the movie will, you know, deliver a really good uh, tourism return as well because of the things that happen there. It's really good, isn't it, to, to you know, when we're seeing more mob involved in, on the big screen and, and seeing the different yeah. movies that come out, um, you know, just getting to showcase their skills and then to just to see those faces, I think, is a great thing as well for, for the younger yeah. generations to be able to see that and go, oh, yeah, you know, perhaps this is something that, you know, I could do myself yeah. or it's not something that's, you know, completely out of your reach if you, if you want to sort of exactly. dedicate yourself to it. There's that possibility there. Yeah, and I believe he um, was the director of Redfern now as well. Yes, I believe so as well mm. too. Um, also it, acted in it as well. He did. Yes, yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not too familiar with Wayne Blair's work. I'm familiar more with Miranda Tapsell's work. Um, but, you know, really great to see, yeah. you know, Mob involved in, you know, these kinds of ventures, not only to, you know, spruik the NT, but also just talk about the wonderful culture and Aboriginal life that exists up here. Mm. And, and just seeing the territory in mainstream movies it's awesome <laughs> and getting it right too yes. <laughs> I, I can't like tell how many times I've seen different movies and they show <laughs> Alice Springs as like a dirt road and that's it yeah like there's so many films that just well, do that <laughs> well I must say I, I remember reading about this as well and I um, horribly was trying to think of other uh, movies that uh, showed the NT as well on film, and the ones I could think of were like Wolf Creek and That's Terrible. Australia. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, is it? Yeah, oh okay. Yeah. All right. Well then, Ten there canoes. we go. Ten Canoes, David Goodblow. Oh, I That's see. That's done in the Cherokee. That's on the, done in the top end in okay. the wetlands up there, Kakadu, I believe. So um, yeah, yeah, that's another good one. Okay, cool. Well, I was mm. about. To, it's good to know that that <laughs> that particular movie wasn't set here in the NT yeah. because that's not necessarily a good no. uh, look for the NT. Uh, that particular film. <laughs> and um, yeah, just wanted to uh, uh, recorrect. Um, more said yesterday? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, okay, we'll, we'll just move on to something else <laughs> that we mentioned uh, yesterday as well in our uh, news from around the country. I should just clarify, we spoke about the Barclay Regional deal that was uh, signed uh, over the weekend. Um, Senator Nigel Scullion, uh, the mayor of the Barclay Regional uh, Council, Steve Edgington and um, Bridget McKenzie and a whole lot of other politicians were up there. Jerry McCarthy. And Jerry McCarthy well. from the Northern Territory Labor Party. Uh, he, I, I did mention on air that there were no Aboriginal representation at the signing deal, although I have uh, been corrected and uh, I have been told that there has been and uh, there was a welcome to country from an elder. Uh, there was uh, the Barclay governance table members where many of the members are Aboriginal as well. I just want to rectify that to say that there were Aboriginal people at the launch of that and they had uh, involvement in, in signing the Barclay Regional Deal as well. So just a clarification there. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll head to our next thing now. On, on to you, Damien. I understand uh, a story in regards to Aboriginal, uh, the return of Aboriginal remains. Yes, uh, Germany is returning uh, the remains of dozens of Aboriginal ancestors to Australia in what has been called one of the largest handovers of its kind. In total, the remains of um, 53 ancestors are being returned this month. Um, yeah, a collection of um, skulls and bones and um, <clears throat> a number of other things were removed by researchers in the late 19th to early 20th century and put on show in museums around the world as well. Um, 
Well, Germany has committed to returning the human remains in in its collections. Uh, the Australian Minister for Communications and Art, Mitch Fifield, um, welcomed the re- repatriations, um, which he said contributes to the healing and reconciliation. So, um, yeah, the remains of uh, 37 ancestors from the state, um, Ethan Eth ethnographic collections and five ancestors from the Martin Luther University are being returned. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, good to see uh, a lot of those, um, ancestors being returned and being able to be put to rest back home. Yeah, definitely. I imagine, you know, as you mentioned it, that healing process for the mob, you know, to have, you know, your, your family remains, you know, so far away, I, I can't imagine what that possibly is to go through. So to ha- to have it back, to have that healing process, to have yeah. mob back on country, r- yeah. really, really important. And, and another important thing as well, um, Germany also has a large collection um, holdings of African human remains um, from the Namibian genocide. Um, so they they will be returned also um, uh, through a lot of uh, repatriation of of a lot of. Uh, ancestral bones from many countries so um, that's good to see mm. and just quickly back to you Philippe I understand we've got a story uh, in regards to Tanya Day yeah you've been following up this story a little bit Kyle uh, the family of Tanya Day a Yoda Yoda woman who died in the custody of Victoria Police actually calling on the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews to scrap the offence of public drunkenness. Now, we know that there is a coronial inquiry at the moment and uh, the next directions hearings is on the 30th of April into the death of Miss Tanya Day. Um, uh, This week, earlier this week, uh, 80 organisations have signed an open letter to the Premier to abolish the crime of public drunkenness um, and some of those organisations include JIRA, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, and the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, uh, many legal services from around the country. Uh, it's been quoted that um, the uh, it was being it's been quoted that. Um, uh, here from uh, Ruth Barson from the Human Rights Law Centre in this article from The Australian uh, says that she says that if, if the, the offence um, had been abolished as recommended by the Royal Commission almost 30 years ago, the Royal Commission into Indigenous Deaths and Custody, Tanya Day would, would not have been arrested and locked up and that's precisely why her family are pushing this reform in such an impassioned way. And that's a quote from her. Uh, so, yes, uh, yeah, the coronial inquiry continues and we'll learn more about it later this month. Yeah, definitely from... Uh, I know last time I spoke to Ruth Barson was in regards to, to the Tony Day as they are uh, representing the, the family. Again, yeah, just pushing that message of the need to scrap public drunkenness, uh, you know, as... You know, the, a particular friends where you can, you know, mm. be locked up, because at the end of the day, I mean, to to be locked up for public drunkenness and then to die in incarceration for something that mundane is, it's just such a, it's a hard thing to fathom, and and you can understand without a doubt the the 
push from the families and the different organisations of, of why they're so passionate about this and the fact that, you know, we really shouldn't be seeing things like this happening. Yeah. It should also be noted in this uh, report that Ms Day's family will also call for the coroner to consider the role racism played in the death of Ms Day too. So they certainly believe that it, that racism, racial profiling, took part in particular this case. Yes. Yeah, so from, from the discussions that I had previously, a concern was, you know, for... Uh, you know, certain events like the AFL Grand Final mm. or like Melbourne Cup and things like that. Obviously, people are very often leaving those environments intoxicated, but a lot of those people aren't being locked up and they're not, you know, dying coming home from the Melbourne Cup or the AFL Grand Final. Uh, so why is it, you know, that we're, we're seeing an Aboriginal woman in this case, you know, that happening to her? So mm. definitely more questions and, and, and obviously more proceedings to happen and it'll be you know interesting to see how things proceed there mm-hmm. indeed well on that note uh, Damien Philippe thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country thank you Kalamata thanks you're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio <laughs> that's right you're listening to Strong Voices we're going to head to our next story now uh, Nacho the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation is the peak national representative body for Aboriginal community controlled health services across the country. With the uh, federal election being announced for the 18th of May, Nacho are calling uh, uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, health to be made a priority. Nacho put forward a range of recommendations which they feel need to be addressed. Some of these priorities include uh, increasing base funding of Aboriginal community controlled health organisations, ending rheumatic heart disease in Indigenous communities, addressing Aboriginal youth suicide rates and improving housing in remote communities. I spoke with uh, Danella Mills, the acting chair of NACHO, who says the priorities have come from a lot of hard work. Those recommendations have come from intensive work. You know, we have had these conversations with our membership and we've identified those key priorities. And what we're taking to the federal election is a really strong message that, you know, NACHO is inviting all politicians from all sides to put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and the Aboriginal health community control sector at the heart of this coming federal election. You know, there is a number of priorities that we've put forward. We've identified 10 key areas. There's four of them that are just so integral to the way that we deliver services on the ground. One being funding. You know, we need to have appropriate funding in order to deliver the service, infrastructure, housing, and, you know, youth suicide. So I just wanted to highlight those four areas. So in, in particular then, for, for those four areas, why are, are they particularly ones that need to be highlighted? Oh, look, housing. I mean, we have to have good housing for good health. I mean, as we are all aware, you know, across the nation, what we're seeing is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in dire need of appropriate housing. We know that there's a housing shortfall. We are fully aware that some of the jurisdictions have not entered into housing agreements. What this impact means for families is devastating on the ground. It's that poor housing that contributes to other, you know, factors around people's health. And, you know, youth suicide, you know, fits into that as well. 
Uh, one of the things you were talking about was the funding aspects. Can you detail a little bit about that? Um, in particular, what sort of funding is still sort of needed around improving Indigenous health? Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have two to three times the burden of disease. We know that our population is increasing, but yet those funding levels are not increasing in line. So if I can use this example, when you look at our aged care population, we don't question the fact that they have a higher need. And so funds are appropriated for that. The evidence tells us that we have a higher burden of disease, so we need appropriate levels of funding in order to provide that service. We need funding for sustainable delivery of high-quality primary health care through our Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations. We have seen uh, the election campaign underway for, uh, I believe, around five days, and there has been a, a lot of talk from both major parties regarding health initiatives. What, what amount of focus have you seen from those parties regarding health for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities? What we know from the budget release a couple of weeks ago, there was huge conversation around health, and health is a priority for both parties. What I'm not hearing is anything specific for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and wellbeing. Part of this federal election platform is calling on both governments to put this at the heart of what they're going to be speaking to. So, so then, fr from your point of view, we, we haven't really seen Indigenous health as a priority. What, what do you think it's going to take to ensure that Indigenous health can become a priority to, to our major parties moving forward? I suppose the main change since the Closing the Gap um, report that was released a couple of months ago is what we have now is, you know, this historic partnership agreement on Closing the Gap, which is an agreement between the Prime Minister, Commonwealth Government, State and Territory Governments with the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Bodies are planned to move forward in the next 10 years. And, you know, what our hope for the coalition hope is that this will give us that opportunity to be equal partners at the table. So we will be a part of the design, the implementation and the evaluation of, of what this closing the gap refresh will look like into the future. We've never had that previously. And that's obviously been a big concern for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations across the country, that level of input and actual say in terms of, you know, how things go moving forward and the actual implementation of those things and, and how that actually progresses. You know, we've heard from in the past, you know, it, you know, it's time to do things with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not to them. Are you confident moving forward in terms of that engagement that those voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and communities are going to be heard? I, I am confident. I mean, undoubtedly there is an enormous amount of work ahead. But the difference is that, you know, we are pleased that government's taking steps to avoid some of the mistakes of the past by ensuring that our input through the Coalition of Peaks is going to be a part of this formal process in moving forward. You know, we are entering into this in good faith and we have a genuine partnership between the Coalition of Peaks and COAG, and we've never had that. So I hope that with that footing around 
equality at the table, you know, having true representation from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peak bodies, which are represented, you know, we directly appoint people from our community to sit on these boards and to be a part of that national conversation. I, I, I really hope that moving forward that our voice is going to have a lot more strength in that design and implementation. Now, a, a big concern that has been raised right across the country is the concerns around Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander mob uh, committing suicide. Uh, you know, we saw an allocation specifically in terms of uh, youth suicide amongst Indigenous people, uh, I, I believe around a $5 million commitment. Is this enough and what more sort of needs to be done? It's not enough. We know that. Uh, in, in recent days, Minister White has released additional funds. You know, that's come as part of the um, LNP federal election promises. And, you know, this money is welcomed, but we need substantial funds to be put directly into communities so that communities together can be able to bring in what is best practice within their communities. We need to have proper engagement around what the needs of the community are in relation to the difficulties faced around youth suicide. We need our communities to be empowered to be able to bring those changes that they feel are appropriate for their given communities. And so, of course, with that requires funds. Some of our communities that are working through this are the most isolated, remote communities. So funds are significantly higher to bring in those specialists, psychologists, the, the sort of team, the multidisciplinary team that you need to come into community to support community, very different to an urban setting. A story that's come out recently from the ABC uh, was about the remote Northern Territory community of Mbladawatch and they recently celebrated the opening of a new, uh, I believe it was a $3.8 million clinic, which actually replaced a 30-year-old building. But Despite this, uh, they are actually calling for more funding to provide 24-hour services, with the CEO actually stating the clinic provided uh, 435 hours of -of out-of-hours emergency services, which they aren't actually funded for. I mean, is is this sort of thing something that you've heard happening before and concerns around sort of things like this, where there's, you know, certain funding allocated, but, you know, certain other funding still isn't being provided in terms of services that are being delivered to communities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, service design is, you know, a nine to, for example, a nine-to-five, you know, but what we know is that levels of harm escalate once businesses are closed. So we need to continue to, you know, have these conversations about what is best practice, I mean, if our doors are closing at 5 o'clock and we have individuals that require support and are unable to engage with that support because, you know, you need to check in at 9 o'clock, that's not working. You know, so these conversations will continue into the future. And what we know is need is real on the ground. We need to move towards having 24-hour clinics. We need to be able to have safe spaces for young people, for any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people that need that safety. You know, and I, my hope is that 
With the right funding, we can do so much more, but we need to move towards having these conversations with mob on the ground and understand what they see as the best way to move forward. What would be your message moving forward in terms of making Indigenous health a, a priority and the importance of that and Aboriginal people's involvement in that process? Firstly, mob. We must vote. You know, what I'm being made aware of as we are going through this, you know, cycle, getting to federal election is there are pockets in our community where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, we could be the swing vote. So I say that to Mob, if you're not enrolled, get enrolled to vote. Do it really quickly and promptly. And on the day of the election, put forward your vote. And secondly, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health is a priority for the nation and for your listeners out there, support our platform, support the priority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' health and well-being being a key priority in this upcoming election. That was uh, Danella Mills there, the Acting Chair of NACHO, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, discussing some priorities that they've put forward, some recommendations in the lead-up to the federal election and making Indigenous health a priority. Hi guys, this is Dan Sutton and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Well now we're going to head into our final story of the show. Uh, Last week the Royal Australian Mint released a special 50 cent coin into circulation which recognises the International Year of Indigenous Languages. In a ceremony in Adelaide the coin was unveiled and while you will be able to see the coin in regular circulation, there are also a number of limited edition coins, uh, collectible coins available. Uh, Royal Australian Mint CEO Ross McDermott uh, spoke to Karma's Philippe Perez about the new 50 cent coin. Thank you, Ross McDermott, for talking to us here at Karma Radio. Appreciate it. Pleasure, uh, Philippe. How are you? Well, thank you. This new coin has been uh, released just very recently, uh, and it is celebrating the many languages of uh, First Nations people uh, in this International Year of Indigenous Language. I suppose, let's start off, I suppose, with the basics. Could you describe for our listeners, considering that we are the radio medium, how the coin looks like? Sure. So it's a 50 cent piece. um, And from the left-hand side, as you're looking at the reverse, uh, there is a series of stripes. And in those stripes, we've got the 14 words that as closely as possible approximate um, the indigenous word for money or for coin. Um, in some cases, that's a bit of a long stretch, but um, in other cases where the word means, for example, peace, P-I-E-C-E, um, it, uh, it closely approximates uh, some sort of a vehicle for transacting or trading. Why did you think it was important to release this coin, Ross? So... We, uh, we always look out uh, somewhere between 18 months and two years in advance of a particular year or a, what, what might be a celebration, commemoration of an event or an occasion or in this case the International Year of Indigenous Languages. And as a result of us looking out and researching that in 2019 we were going to be, it would be the Year of International Year of Indigenous Languages, we thought what a great way to celebrate the wonderful uh, Indigenous languages of Australia. Um, and, uh, and work with IATSIS to identify 30 uh, particular uh, regions or tribes or mobs um, that actually have got uh, active 
indigenous languages being spoken and we ultimately brought that down to 14 as a result of having conversations with those groups about the possibility of using a word that closely approximates uh, the use, you know, a coin or, or money. Can you tell us a little bit more about those consultations? Like, what did you ask? How the discussions happened with with the Royal Australian Mint? Sure. So we actually uh, started. We we relied heavily on IATSIS to help us identify those uh, those particular regions, and we simply asked the question: Would you be prepared to allow us to use a word, uh, or do you have a word that, in fact, uh, we could use that would be closely approximating money or coin? Uh, and as a result of that, uh, it was a bit of self-selecting. We got down to the fourteen words that we've now got on the coin. Now, can you explain exactly how these 14 groups are represented on the coin? You've already kind of mentioned it a bit, but maybe yeah. outline sure. some of those groups. And So it you know. wasn't... It- Yep, sure, Philippe. It wasn't. It wasn't ever intended to be uh, particularly selective, and, and and therefore isolating those other regions that uh, were not necessarily included on the coin or the words that were included on the coin. Um, but we went. We tried to get a, you know the. We'd love to have had the complete, you know, list of uh, regions covering the whole of Australia. But as it turns out, we haven't got quite got that. But we've got uh, a really good representation of um, the regions in Australia where Indigenous language is still spoken, and so. It was just a process of having a conversation, uh, getting confirmation from those uh, people in those regions uh, that they'd be happy to use that word or have that word put onto the coin. And then so we've ended up with um, the areas that we've got covered off, which in this case would be Perth, Alice Springs, Darwin, Tennant Creek. Again, Alice Springs... um, uh, places in the Northern Territory, including Darwin, Wagga Wagga, mm. Sojourner, Adelaide, Hope Vale, Cairns, Brisbane, Nambucca Heads, and Darwin, Northern Territory, Cairns. So, from my understanding, the coin will enter circulation fairly soon if it's not out in circulation already. Is that right? It was released out of circulation from the 8th of April, and so people should look out for it uh, coming out in their change. It may take a while because it goes out through the typical banking system. Uh, there's two million of those coins that have been released. There's also a, uh, a silver proof coin. What does that mean? It means that the silver proof is only 5,000 of those. Uh, they are a mirror image, uh, beautiful silver coin that's in a case that's available from the Royal Australia Mint. And there's also a coin and a card the, uh, the quality of that uh, particular coin is uh, what we would describe as uncirculated quality, which is better than the circulating quality. It's in a card that's also available from the Royal Australian Mint if you want to get your hands on these uh, right away. How long was the process of like maybe getting the idea of having their coin uh, all the way through to consultation to today? How long did that process go for? Philippe can take as long as uh, so the initial research probably was going back 18 months, but the process once we've got past that that moment of research would be, or it could take us six to nine months uh, from the acceptance of the idea right through to what we call a currency determination, which means that once we've got to a position where we believe we've got the uh, the coin um, design completed, we take that to the government to get approval from the government through the minister that is responsible for the Royal Australia Mint uh, to give us a currency determination. Once that's done, it then uh, comes back into the Royal Australia Mint for production. So the reason we do the currency determination is because the Queen's effigy actually is owned by the Commonwealth and Mm. that uh, has to be approved by the minister or the government of the day. We know that the permanent $2 coin reflects the Aboriginal heritage of Australia and there's there's commemoration of First Nations peoples on the currency that's currently in circulation. You know, how much more do you hope the Mint can reflect Aboriginal Australia through the currency designs that we have and use? 
look as many as many opportunities as we possibly can. Give you an idea that uh, in the time I've been here since that's 2010, we've actually uh, celebrated Indigenous Indigenous um, uh, Australians um, from 2014 when we did the uh, IATSIS coin. Uh, that was the 50th anniversary of the research institute that was established under the. Uh, the legislation of the Commonwealth. In 2017, we did uh, the mid-mark, the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum and the 25th anniversary of Mabo with a 50-cent coin as well. And in 2018, we came up with a silver uncirculated coin to acknowledge the Reconciliation Action Plan. Um, and so we take every opportunity we can when there's a major event, major anniversary, or an opportunity for us to to encourage people to um, present some, you know, for us to produce a coin that encourages people to think about the importance of Indigenous, uh, in this case, languages to Australia and the uh, ability for us with uh, with the release of that coin for people to try and help um, those uh, languages to be, you know, to survive. Um, just lastly, Ross, uh, I just also would like to talk about some of these coin swaps. I've just noticed that there's a few events happening uh, fairly soon, or, or have they already been done? Um, no, at- no, so we actually now try, we go out to the regions of Australia, so mm-hmm. not just regional major cities and towns, uh, to all the major capital cities, we do it every year, and we've been doing it now for the last five years. Uh-huh. The idea behind it is that we go out to uh, the regions or the, the major cities, and we want to take the Royal Australian Mint to the people, uh, and we offer people the opportunity to do a swap. In this case, we're looking to swap the um, this uh, particular coin program, uh, the coin itself, a few cent piece with an indigenous language on it, uh, that actually uh, can, so if someone comes down with a $10 note, they can get uh, the 50 cent pieces in a uh, in a pack. Um, or we can actually offer them other coins that we'll have out as well uh, that come out uh, as part of our, our uh, pop-up shop program. All right, well, Ross, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma up here in Alice Springs. Really appreciate you giving us your time. It's been great. Thank you very much for your interest. Um, I guess the thing I'd probably just finish off by saying is that when we launched the, uh, this program in Adelaide uh, earlier this week, um, the message that came very really, uh, out loud and clear from the guest speakers, which was Craig Ritchie from IATSIS and Jackie Troy from the, um, the Sydney University, was to ensure that... Uh, when people do get this coin and take it out of circulation or look at it, that what they do is they reflect on the importance of Indigenous languages to this country. And in some way, hopefully, our contribution by having these coins minted the way we have helps people to reflect on the importance of those languages and uh, the importance of trying to help uh, maintain them across, uh, across Australia. I think that's a really good point to end our conversation. Thanks very much, Ross McDermott, for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Ross. Yes, that was uh, the Royal Australian Mint CEO, Ross McDermott, speaking to Karma's Philippe Perez. That's going to conclude the program for today. Thank you for tuning in to Strong Voices. Hopefully, you enjoyed all the stories that we've been playing for you this Tuesday morning. If you missed any of them or want to listen back to the program, we'll be posting up a podcast on the uh, Karma webpage. That's uh, caama.com.au. And uh, we'll be back at the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Stay safe and enjoy your day. Strong voices.